Well, welcome to family, friends, guests. Um, thanks for sticking around Sunday and coming and joining us for worship. If it's not your regular practice to be among us, uh, as Larry mentioned, we're in a series in Second Samuel. We're actually wrapping it up. This is the second to last sermon we've been in First and Second Samuel most of this year, and we're coming to the very end of Second Samuel now. I think Larry did a good job of setting up the context, so I won't spend any time reviewing that. I'll just get right into chapters 19 and 20, which is what we're going to look at this morning. So Absalom, David's son, who attempted to take the throne from David, is now dead. And David is back in Jerusalem. He's not on the run anymore. He's not fleeing for his life like he was in the previous chapters. And so what you would assume would happen is what's going to happen, which is David is going to have a necessary reckoning with those who joined the opposition against him as the true king. I'm not trying to compare this to anything or even make a political statement about this, but it would be very similar to what happened on January 6th in our capital. If you think about it for a while, you had this group, whatever you think they were doing, um, at the capital that eventually, over time, there was a reckoning for activities that were done there. Insert your crime of choice or event of choice or whatever. Sometimes there can be a time period that elapses between the actual deed that is done and then what happens in the wake of it. And what we're going to see in these particular chapters, in chapters 19 and 20, is there's one kind of reckoning in chapter 19, and then there's another kind of reckoning in chapter 20. How do they differ? How does each reflect an aspect of not only David's kingdom, but more importantly, the kingdom of God? Before we get there, let's just review what we see at the beginning of chapter 19. The chapter opens with David continuing to mourn, as he did at the end of chapter 18, over the death of his son Absalom. And this causes no small amount of consternation with Joab, his military commander, who rebukes him for showing such devotion to a murderous traitor while disregarding the loyal subjects who were risking their lives for him while he was on the run from Absalom. Even though Joab, as we've seen, can be at times ruthless and somewhat brazen, no one can question he is absolutely loyal to David, and he always seeks to act in David's best interest, even while he was put in numerous positions to seize control from David himself as his chief military and general commander. So Joab warns David that if he doesn't stop this crying and he doesn't reach out to those who have done so much for him, then the kingdom which Absalom failed to take will soon be lost by David. And so David receives Joab's rebuke. He takes it to heart and he holds court at the gate, similar to what Absalom did, remember, when he was trying to court the kingdom himself. Well, David's now courting his kingdom. So people are beginning to come out to David. And this is good. Because in the aftermath of all that has gone down with Absalom, a divided nation needs to be healed. Now I have a question for you. Look at what David does here in verse 8 after Absalom gives him this rebuke. It says, Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. Brothers and sisters, David is demonstrating 
that he is still a repentant man. He didn't just get over his repentance back in chapter 12 when Nathan confronted him. He is still listening to godly rebuke, even when it comes harshly. Dear ones, are we willing to listen to godly rebuke? Proverbs 9, 8. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Which are we? Are we a scoffer? Do we hate those who reprove us? Do we get angry at those who reprove us? Or do we love those who reprove us? Even if they do it in a not-so-nice way. We can see the value of the reproof even if we don't like the way the reprover gave it. Let's be clear. There are certainly times where reproof is unwarranted. There are certainly times where reproof is not needed. There are certainly times where we should overlook offenses. There are certainly times where we shouldn't confront an offense. But nevertheless, if we are still sinners and we are still blinded as a result of our sin, then we will need reproof regularly. Some of it comes even this morning as I'm preaching on this point of reproof. But more often it comes interpersonally as we engage with one another and try to help one another to love Jesus more and to follow Jesus more faithfully. And that should always be our goal. It's never personal. If it's personal, we got some work to do on our own hearts. But rather, it should be faithfulness that marks it. Now, is, is uh, Joab being a little too hard on David here? I mean, after all, David has just lost his son. Now, let's be clear. It's certainly appropriate to mourn over the loss of a loved one, right? Jesus wept. Where did that verse come out of? John chapter 11. It was a funeral of friends. There's certainly a time to weep over the loss of a loved one. Ecclesiastes 3.4 says there's a time to weep. However, a believer's grief must always be tempered by our responsibility to fulfill what God has called us to do. And I think that's what Joab is giving the rebuke for. He's not discounting the importance of the grief. He's acknowledging that it's keeping him from doing what a king should do. Sounds a lot like what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verses 59 and 60. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That sound harsh? What's the point? We must love Christ even more than our own families. That doesn't discount the obligation to honor our father and mother. But it does mean that a Christian's interaction with his family must be distinctly Christian. Is there in your interaction with your beloved physical family a noticeable distinction in your greater love for your spiritual family? Or does physical family always take the place of spiritual family? Brothers and sisters, I want to be honest with you here. I believe that is an idol. Now, am I saying that family isn't critical? No, of course not. We have obligations, right obligations and responsibilities to family. And if we don't meet them, we are worse, according to Paul, than an unbeliever. But 
If spiritual family, and this requires wisdom, there's no pat easy answers for this. We have different family dynamics with different family situations. But I'm asking you to ask in your heart regularly, is there a discernible evidence that my spiritual family is more important than my physical family? And this must characterize a follower of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus did. Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35. Listen to these familiar words. And his mother and his brothers, Mary and his physical brothers, came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at the group who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Does that mean Jesus doesn't love his mom? No. He gave John the responsibility of caring for her when he was on the cross. He loves his mom. But his mom is not the most important person in his life. His physical mom. Now, was his physical mom, was he saying there that his physical mom was not a believer? No, not necessarily. He's making a distinction in what they're objecting to. They're objecting to, hey, your mom's seeking you. Your brothers are seeking you. Family is the most important thing. And he says, this is my family. These are my family. And so David's mourning over Absalom wasn't wrong. It was just inappropriately excessive. Admittedly, there are few harder trials in life than the death of an unsaved loved one. I can, I can hardly think of anything that would be harder. But Aaron sets an excellent example for us in the death of his own unbelieving sons in Leviticus chapter 10. Listen to these words. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. The will of the Lord has been done. The will of the Lord is right. Now, does that mean he was sort of cold and unemotional? No. You can be deeply emotional and keep your peace. It's not mutually exclusive. So recalling this point, I think it's important to to emphasize that the reason that Joab rebukes David is not because David is out of bounds in his grief for Absalom. It would be wrong if he wasn't. He wasn't at some level sad about the death of his son who was against him. That's a remarkable evidence of grace and mercy in David's heart. But you have to remember, David's having the same kind of problems as other kings before him. As Saul did with his sons, as Samuel did with his sons, as Eli did with his sons. The tendency to place too much of our heart in physical lineage. So recalling David's past achievements, the northern kingdom of Israel takes initiative to restore David as their king, and then David also begins to rally support in the south through the priesthood. And then, in a very strange turn of events, after David is busy kind of reuniting the kingdom and healing the wounds that Absalom inflicted, and David's sin inflicted, David then elevates Absalom's former general, Amasa, to replace Joab. 
as his army commander. This is done perhaps in an effort to unite the two sides after the war, or it could be David's effort to put Joab in his place after Joab defied David's order to spare Absalom's life. Remember, he told him, don't you kill him. And he went ahead and did it. And so David removes him from his post. Didn't sin messy. Don't you want to know who's right? The Bible doesn't tell us who's right. The Bible just tells us that's what happened. But this sort of stuff is creating division in David's kingdom, even as he's trying to heal his own kingdom. This is not the kingdom we're looking for, dear ones. Either way, it doesn't last long, as we will soon see a ruthless and unscrupulous Joab take the first opportunity he can to assassinate Amasa and regain his position in chapter 20, which we'll come to shortly. So why do I call this two reckonings? We're going to look at these reckonings that David has with both his enemies and his friends. I've entitled this sermon, David the Calculating King. And what I mean by calculating is the definition of the word reckoning. So by reckoning, I mean the action or process of calculating or estimating something, a settlement or a judgment. So David is reckoning with both his friends and his enemies and issuing judgment on them in chapters 19 and 20. So we're going to see in the first example, two enemies that David confronts and then two friends that David confronts and how he deals with both of them. And then what we learn from how he deals with them to how the Lord Jesus treats us, both in similar ways to David and in not similar ways to David. First of all, the reckoning with David's enemies. Let's first of all look at the reckoning with Shimei. I believe I was pronouncing this Shimei. You maybe pronounced it Shimei before. I believe it's Shimei. I double-checked the Hebrew this week, but I could be wrong. But um, we'll go with Shimei anyway. If you get Shimei, that's fine. So David meets with the same people, beginning with Shimei, whom he met on his way out of Jerusalem while fleeing from Absalom. And remember, Shimei was a loyal relative of King Saul's who had cursed him. He was the one who was shouting curses at David. No doubt under the assumption that David would soon be dead at Absalom's feet. Well, surprise. Rather than trying to flee for his life, Shimei rushes into the king's presence And notice what he says. Look at verse 16 of chapter 19. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. It's good that he hurried. His life was going to be taken, no doubt. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. So he brought a crowd with him. Verse 18, and they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph to come down to meet my Lord the king. So rather than trying to flee for his life, Shimei rushes into the king's presence seeking forgiveness for the way he slandered David. And notice how David responds in verse 21. 
Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should say this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Though Shimei deserves to be put to death, David shows him mercy on account of his repentance. While no doubt David has a heart of compassion, his pardoning of Shimei may have some political motivation, as having someone as powerful and influential as Shimei in your corner would be helpful in establishing peace and unity in Israel, but we know that's not the only thing David's doing here. Notice the language he uses in verse 23. You shall not die. Where did David hear those words? You shall not die. Nathan, the prophet, in chapter 12, when he confronted him about his sin. And that mercy has never left him. Dear ones, we are Shimei. Aren't we? We are those who have rebelled and cursed Jesus with our lives. By ignoring him, by neglecting him, by not giving him the attention and the allegiance that he deserves, some of us have actually cursed him with our mouths. Some of us have just cursed him silently with our lives. But we've all cursed him. And we all deserve the king's judgment. And the Lord Jesus has looked at us when we have come fleeing back to him, knowing that we don't deserve anything, and he has said, you shall not die. I give you my oath. And the oath is the blood of the new covenant, which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And my resurrection guarantees I won't turn it back. Dear ones, how can we who have been affected with such grace turn and treat anybody else any different? Husbands, you treat your wives with that kind of grace? Or are you always holding something against them? Wives, you treat your husbands with that kind of grace? Or do you got 50 things on your list holding against them this morning? What about church members? Got any grudges you continue to carry? Any, un- any bitterness you're not willing to let go of? Any unforgiveness you're not willing to grant? You need to get in touch again with the words the Lord Jesus said, you shall not die. And if you continue to hold on to that and refuse to give forgiveness, how can you say your heart's been touched by the mercy of God? Isn't that what Jesus said? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall what? Obtain mercy. It's a reflection of the Father's heart. Matthew 5, 23 to 26 makes it clear. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, go into Sunday worship, go into the Lord's table, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. It doesn't even put the impetus on the one who's been wronged. It puts the impetus on the one who thinks they've wronged another. 
First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Isn't this Shimei? I better get this fixed quick. Let me speak to some of us here this morning. Maybe you're an adult, maybe you're a teen, maybe you're a child. You're delaying salvation. You're putting it off. You're not like Shimei who recognizes, I'm under a curse. I got to get this curse lifted. And he books it to David. If that's you this morning, you need to make a beeline to Christ as fast as you can. You don't need to be playing games with the fact that you're under the curse of God. Don't, Don't let that sit on you. Don't let that rest on you like the Damocles sword hanging over your head just, just waiting to drop. Jonathan Edwards in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, says, said that, that we, we are hung like a thin spider web over hell. God is holding us that way. can break at any moment. This is why the Lord says today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your hearts. It doesn't get any easier. If you have any inclination towards Christ now, take it now. It may not be there tomorrow. And this is why we must, like Shimei, run to Jesus. And what will we get when we get there? Forgiveness, mercy, abundance. He's not going to kick you out. He's not going to say, wait. Oh, is it that guy that cursed me? Tell him to wait outside. No, he gets an audience with the king right away. And that's what we get. And David's willingness to forgive is a picture of the mercy that we should freely, quickly, and cheerfully extend to repentant ones who have wronged us. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Has God been kind to you? Has God been tenderhearted to you? Has God been forgiving to you? Then do that for one another. Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Luke 17, 3 and 4. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying repent, you must forgive him. You must. Put yourself in David's shoes. Remember what Shimei said about him? It was some pretty vicious words. And we know the lie. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never kill me. That's not true. Words are the worst things. They hurt the deepest. Life and death is in the power of the tongue, Proverbs says. And Shimei sowed death into David's life again and again. And when he has the opportunity to grind an axe and settle a score. He doesn't do it. Why? Because he follows God. Who could grind an axe and settle a score with us and didn't do it. A reckoning with Sheba is next. That's the first, a reckoning with Shimei. Secondly, a reckoning with Sheba. We pick up at the end of chapter 19 where we find quarreling between tribes in the north and in the south. So the kingdom is not coming together as planned. Look at chapter 19, verse 40. We'll read through 43. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. 
All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all the uh, David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten it all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? Verse 43, and the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have ten shares in the king, and David also, we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So Sheba is going to stir up some trouble in the northern tribes and encourage them to break away from David and his kingdom. Look at the first two verses of chapter 20. Now there happened to be there in that group a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So David responds quickly to the threat and tells Amasa, his new military commander, to get an army ready. And meanwhile, as we mentioned earlier, Joab murders Amasa and lays siege to the city of Abel where Sheba has sought refuge, persuading the people of the city to kill Sheba. Now Sheba is brought under judgment and life in Israel returns to normal. Look at verse 23 to 26 at the end of chapter 20. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites, Cherethites and the Pelethites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. And Shiva was secretary. And Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira, the Jerite, was also David's priest. Now the type of activity that Sheba engages in is sadly all too present um, in the body of Christ. Notice what Sheba says again in verse 2. We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. Just as the tribes of Israel unnecessarily quarreled with David while he was trying to unite them, unnecessary factions can arise in the church even among the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 11-13, through 13, Paul reports one of them. He says, For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was, Christ cru- was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Many church divisions are more matters of pride and personalities and hurt feelings than biblical substance like sin and righteousness. Harsh words, anger over perceived slights, impugning motives, defensiveness, returning evil for evil, these things are all too common. Then, when feelings are hurt like Sheba, we can seek to split the congregation rather than working for reconciliation. Children, how has the Thanksgiving break been at your house? Has there been quarreling? Has there been fighting? Has there been struggles? Does, do those, does that fighting and that quarreling with your siblings reveal anything to you about your need for Jesus? It does for me. Galatians 5.15 says, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Dear ones, 
We're called to be peacemakers. Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Hebrews 12, 14, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We like to quote the second part of that verse. Strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What is the holiness that the writer to the Hebrews is actually talking about there? Peacemaking. Strive for peace and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you do not strive for peace as a characteristic of your life, you're not a holy person, which means you don't have any reason to think you will see the Lord. That's what the writer seems to uh, say here, which is why Romans 12, 18, Paul says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We can't live peaceably with all, but we can as far as it depends on us. We know there are multiple actors in any peacekeeping arrangement. We can't make peace with everybody, but we do try to live at peace with everybody as much as we possibly can. So we should, we're called to be peacemakers. We should be eager to overlook perceived and real offenses. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook an offense. Think of, that's what David did with, David did with Shimei. It was his glory to overlook an offense. Why was it his glory? Because he was secure in his identity as king, right? Dear ones, what gives us the grace to forgive and overlook is because you know that everything done against you has nothing to do with you, ultimately. Now, it may have been something that you did. It may have been legitimately your fault. All that's true. But if your life is hidden with Christ in God, and Christ is your life, and Christ is your identity then Christ is the one that you are called to represent anyway. So some of us just need to get over ourselves. We are not that big of a deal. You can be slighted. You're not center of the universe important. Neither am I. But when we get slighted, it really, it really, wants, it really tempts us to reinstate ourselves right to the center of the solar system, doesn't it? Everybody's not revolving around me as they ought to. First Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. We should also assume the best of each other. First Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We should speak with kindness and grace. Proverbs 15, 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So we learn what not to do from Sheba. We learn what to do from David in his treatment of Shimei. But notice how the responses of the enemies are, are unique there, depending on whether or not they are repentant or not. Secondly, we come to David's reckoning with his friends. We're going to look at two of his friends and how they come back to him and want to be reconciled as well. First of all, we get a reckoning with Mephibosheth. Now, after Shimei, Mephibosheth, who was Jonathan's son, remember Jonathan was David's best friend, the one to whom David had once shown such mercy, um, in chapter 9, David had extended such grace to Mephibosheth. Remember, Mephibosheth was disabled. He was lame in his feet in some way. He couldn't walk or there was some sort of disability he had. And David brought him to his table, put him in his family, and said, I'm going to treat you as Jonathan treated me. But remember that there was a little bit of a breakdown in their relationship in later chapters because Mephibosheth's servant, Ziba, had accused Mephibosheth of treason back in chapter 16, and David had given Mephibosheth's land to Ziba as a result. 
However, here, Mephibosheth claims that his loyalty has never wavered, and he accuses Ziba of being deceitful, leaving him behind when he wanted to go with David before quickly slandering him to David. Look at chapter 19, verse 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He'd neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes. So this seems to be a sign of his repentance and sadness. From the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, verse 26, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, for your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? Now David notices that Mephibosheth appears to be sincere, But with two conflicting reports, he decides to divide the estate between the two of them. Look at verse 29. The king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Assuming that Mephibosheth is telling the truth, it seems that David didn't do what was required of kings here. Proverbs 25.2, it's the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. This is a challenge no matter how you slice it. You got one person's word against another. You got Ziba, Mephibosheth's servant, saying one thing. You got Mephibosheth saying something else. And so what does he do? Splits the land. Who does that remind you of? David's son, Solomon, coming to David, or Solomon, getting approached by two women, have one baby, split it in half. Maybe Solomon heard that story at some point. But Solomon, the point is, Solomon would have even greater wisdom than David had here, than to know what to do with this situation. Solomon knew what to do with a situation like that. Let's see who's telling the truth. And in fact, I almost think Mephibosheth's words at the end kind of give him the truth on his side. It's not about the land, David. It's about my relationship with you. It's not about what you give me. It's about me being in your family. It's about me being at your table. It's about me being reconciled to you. I suppose it would have been difficult for David to tell the men to bring the land to him so he could cut it in half. Might have been a little more challenging than the baby that Solomon was dealing with. So I sympathize with David. And I hope you can sympathize with David. Because this is not, imagine this is a situation in your workplace or in your family. or It's a complicated, difficult thing that requires wisdom. I'm sure all of us as, as parents can sympathize with David here. Because as parents, we face such trying and difficult circumstances where we all, ha- all we have is the word of one child against the other. And this is why I believe with all due respect, and I sincerely mean this, all due respect to our military, parents should be allowed to park in the combat-wounded parking spaces at Texas Roadhouse. 
because we, it's hard. Break up battles all the time and try to figure out the way forward. But that's another discussion for another time. And we should freely give that to our veterans, absolutely. But ultimately, we do the best we can, and we trust that God is just and that he's going to right all the wrongs in the end, even when we don't have the wisdom to figure it out. Mephibosheth is, however, a good example, isn't he, for how to deal with disappointments and injustice. In light of the fact that he knew he deserved death as a son of Saul's house, he realized that he has nothing to complain about. He was so pleased to be in the presence of David that he knew that material things were of less concern. And dear ones, that's what it means to follow the son of David, Jesus Christ. Are we so delighted in Christ that we are willing to suffer a little loss for his sake? We don't get it, all that we wanted. And it happened because another person lied. Are we going to try to right that wrong everywhere we can because we got to get it now? No, if he's our delight, we don't need to fight a slight. Remember that. If he's your delight, you don't have to fight a slight. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, they can do mean things to you. Absolutely. But the Lord is my helper. So that's a reckoning with Mephibosheth. Finally, we come to a reckoning with Barzillai. Barzillai, remember him? He comes to David. He was the one who at great personal risk, risked his life for David in his hour of need. And we read about him in chapter 19, verse 31. Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, come over with me and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. Now David wants to reward him for his faithful service to him. But instead, Barzillai asked that it be passed on to Chimham, who is perhaps his grandson or a relative of some sort. We do know from 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 7, that David's kindness to Barzillai is continued on through Solomon. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, 1 Kings 2, 7 says, and let them be among those who eat at your table, for with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. Take care of Barzillai's family, Solomon. We read in chapter 19, verses 34, 36, but Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? Notice this profound humility. I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasing and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Oh, Barzillai. Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king, Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Barzillai's response as an 80-year-old man speaks of what many of our older saints among us would tell the younger among us. Let me speak for you older Christians in the room for a moment through the lips of Barzillai. And teens, kids, listen to what the older people in the room would say to you and will say to you. With age, 
you will find that you will enjoy this world less and less. That's what Barzillai says in verse 35. Older people have a deep concern about being a burden to their children, grandchildren, and church family. Verse 36. And as they get older, they want to remain as long as possible in the familiar surroundings of their home. Verse 37. Older saints are also very aware that death is approaching and they want to be a blessing to those who are younger. Barzillai has to do all he can to just make it into the king's presence. And it's, e- it's not easy for an 80-year-old to travel today, much less back then. And similarly, our older brothers and sisters have to do almost all they can just to make it to worship sometimes. So dear younger people, let's not be like this world where the old are discarded or ignored, left to rot their remaining days away, lonely and isolated. Let's honor them. You want to be really countercultural? Care about old people. Gray six, Proverbs 16.31, gray hair is a crown of glory. It's gained in a righteous life. 1 Timothy 5.1-3, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Honor widows who are truly widows. And older saints, don't forget, God's not done with you until he's done with you. Your most fruitful years can be your most lean years where you feel the most ineffective. Psalm, let these verses encourage you. Psalm 92, verses 12 to 14. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. Psalm 71, 18. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. And do not forget the promise of Isaiah 46, 4. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and I will save. God will carry you. God will help you. Those who are loyal to God's king will be honored and rewarded by him. So what about us? Where do we find our responses in these responses to David? Well, they're all over the place. But notice the one unifying thing that runs through the response of Shimei, the response of Barzillai, the response of Mephibosheth, even though these names are strange to us, their actions aren't. They recognize that their only hope is found in, the, in David. That's it. That's it. Their only hope is found there. And so they come. They don't, they don't prop themselves up. They don't acknowledge that they're worthy of David's love, all the things they've done for David. All the, They just plead for mercy. That's all they do. And David gives it to them. He gives it to them. He gives it to Mephibosheth. He gives it to Shimei. He gives it to Barzillai. He throws it out. And that's the way our God is with us. We get treated with lavish, undeserved kindness And we should be grateful for every crumb that falls to us from our master's table. Recognizing that we don't deserve any of it. And that he has freely given us a banquet and a buffet of grace. The king is eager to show mercy. And if David was eager to show mercy, how much more is our greater king, the Lord Jesus, the son of David, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and compassion, whose judgment has a slow wick and whose mercy has a hair trigger. 
That's our God. That's our Jesus. Never turning anyone away who genuinely comes to him desiring his mercy. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the dim reflection of the mercy of our Savior Jesus, even in the actions of David in these chapters, as he extends mercy to both his friends and his enemies. Lord, we acknowledge that by nature none of us were your friends. We were all enemies of God from the womb, led astray, speaking lies. And yet, in your kindness, in your mercy, you have lavished your love on us. You have given us forgiveness of sin. You have, you have given us adoption into your family. You have given us access to your table. You have given us a right and a share in your kingdom. And that we are heirs and joint heirs with Christ, even though we deserve none of it. And so thank you for the ways in which these chapters teach us that the only right response to the king is to fall at his feet, to acknowledge that we are unworthy, and to receive his mercy. And thank you that you give that so freely and so lavishly. For any of those among us who have yet to taste and see that the Lord is good, we pray that they would do that, even this morning, that they would know the kindness of our God, the sweetness of fellowship with him, the, the fact that he never... He said, Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He who the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. Thank you that you didn't cast us out, and thank you that we never will be. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and respond.